Acts chapter 6 verses 1 to 15. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Arabic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Paramenus and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Ju Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then he secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this is that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All, were sit all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his, of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for, for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of the country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him for, from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom, and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. 
When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfil his promise to Abraham, the number of people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to look more closely. He heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled over them with fear and did not, did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected, with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honour of what their hands had made. 
but God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings of 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rethan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our, for our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them. And when they took the land from the nations, God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in the houses made by men. And the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing there at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he, said, when he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul was there giving approval to his death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we've seen in the Acts of the Apostles, the early church gets off to a fantastic start, enjoying the favour of all the people, Acts 2. 3,000 are converted on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 after another miraculous event has been explained, and the converts were from all over the Mediterranean basin and to well into the Middle East as far as today's kind of Iran and Iraq. And also, religious leaders in Jerusalem come to be converted to follow Jesus Christ, who they'd previously dismissed and rejected. But we've seen that there is a counter-attack, primarily led by some of those religious leaders who had attacked Jesus whilst he was on earth. And today, in Acts 6-8, to we see the counter-attack continue but with two very different tactics deployed. In Acts 6, 1 to 7, we have distraction as the method employed. And in 6, 8 to 8, 1, we have the straightforward violence head-on, leading to the death 
of the first Christian martyr. Now the intention, whichever tactic you employ, was the same. The objective was to stop the gospel spreading. In the case of the apostles, it was to divert them into doing lots of good things which took up so much time that uh, they would be unable to do the primary work to which they had been called. There was no time left to spread the gospel. It was all taken up giving this worthy material support to these widows that were part of the Christian community. Laudable. But if it were to continue that that's what the apostles were spending their time doing, the growth of the church would grind to a halt. Now, as far as the devil's concerned, that would be mission accomplished. The same is true of killing a very clear proclaimer of the gospel, Stephen. He's getting a hearing. People are likely to be convinced, convicted and converted. So he has to be stopped and his death would also act, or so they reasoned, a deterrent from others trying to spread the word and winning new adherents to Jesus Christ. So Acts 6, 1 to 7, we have the first Christian community, which was a very diverse one from the start. There were those who were Grecian Jews and those who were Hebraic Jews. Now the Grecian Jews were the Jews of the diaspora, the Jews who had spread across the known world due either to invasion or exile or economic opportunity and who grew up in a very varied Gentile culture. Their religion was Jewish, their language was Greek and probably a couple of others to boot as well. And their cultural background was Greek or Roman or otherwise diverse. And then there were the Hebraic Jews. They were born and bred in the Holy Land. Their religion was Jewish, their language was Aramaic, which was a popular and simplified form of Hebrew. And their cultural background was traditional Judaism. Now among the community were very many widows. Life expectancy in those days was not very great. And nor was their state support in hard times. So the church stepped in and cared for its members. But the Grecian Jews thought that their widows were quote, being overlooked. In other words, they thought that they were getting less support than the local Hebraic Jewish widows. And this resulted in a heck of a lot of aggravation for the apostles. Their time and their energy was being sapped. It was distracting and it was diverting them from their primary task prayer to the Sovereign Lord and the ministry of the Word, the spread of the Gospel, explaining God's grand plan of salvation to which they, the Apostles, had been uniquely witnessed to. A worthy issue to get sorted, but not by the Apostles. Others could do the work 
of welfare distribution. Now the apostles had a more specific and important role to do. So they let the people name, nominate some who may well serve, and the word serve is the same word as deacon, that's what the function is. They, want, they nominated others, they invited nominations from, of others who could do this great act of Christian service, and then the apostles authorised them to do so. And interestingly, all those appointed have Greek names, as if they were sensitive to those visiting Jerusalem from the the Greco-Roman world who were Jewish. They were sensitive to their sense of being um, really not treated fairly. So they appointed people from among their own number, one of whom had first become a Jew and then now had become a Christian, Nicholas of Antioch. And Antioch would become the centre of the future Gentile mission. Now what could have been a complete cul-de-sac for the apostles and the spread of the gospel is averted by a bit of very pragmatic common sense. And so we read as an outcome here, verse 7, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The counterattack fails. The gospel continues to be spread. So there's a lesson here that we share together as Christians in the work of the church. And we all have gifts of time and talent and we have passions. We prefer some than others. And we, as a church collectively, need to make sure that we are all playing to our strengths, especially that those who are good at explaining the gospel, that they can concentrate on that particular contribution, whether in small group or whether one-to-one or whether on some platform. So the counter-attack is beaten off. Now let's move to the second tactic, intimidation, which leads to the martyrdom of Stephen. As I've said, we're all multi-talented and uh, we all have gifts. And such talent and gifts should be dedicated to God when we become Christians. And in the New Testament, they are referred to as spiritual gifts. Now you may, of course, as you grow in the Christian faith, develop other talents, abilities, spiritual gifts. Now which of the gifts, and there are a good number listed in the New Testament, but it's not an exhaustive list. For example, music is not listed in the the Bible as a gift, but it clearly is. Now, which of the gifts is the least desired of the gifts in the various lists? Helps, which simply means putting yourself out for the benefit of others. Generosity, the gift to give away much of your hard-earned income. Celibacy, 
which in this highly sexualized society that they had in the Greco-Roman world and we have today, and the intimacy that should go with it, that's a lot to give up. Or try this one, martyrdom. Yeah, martyrdom is listed as a gift. Interestingly, in the church's calendar, Boxing Day, the 26th of December, the day after we celebrate the coming of Christ into the world, what do we have? We have a feast day of St Stephen, remembering that opposition and even martyrdom might come the way of the Christian. Now, not far from here, quite literally just a few hundred metres, used to live the man in this picture, which I've also put in the letter, the older man in the picture, the late Bishop Hassan Dakani Tafti, the exiled Bishop of Iran. Also in the picture is Bahram, his son. Now I can remember meeting Bahram a few times in the mid-1970s when I was at university. He was in the same college as a good Christian friend of mine and we bumped into each other on a number of occasions. But in 1980, Bahram was murdered back in Iran just after his father, the bishop, had been wounded in an assassination attempt against him by Muslim extremists and he and the family had, retur- uh, had gone to the UK. Martyrdom for Christ and his cause has a long history. The fact that we have the scriptures in our native language and not in Latin is because of William Tyndale, who was martyred in the process of doing it. The form of service that we use, particularly in communion, was compiled by another martyr, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. The great doctrines of salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, through scripture alone, we owe to the faithful bishops Ridley and Latimer, martyrs in a brief period in the middle 16th century for their faith. But Christians are martyred for the faith they hold, not just centuries ago, not just decades ago, but every day. I tried to find the place where the most recent and closest Christian had been martyred, and it would likely seem that it was in Turkey, in, uh, or at least what's reached the public domain, was in Turkey in 2007. The Christians belonged to the Malatya Kurtulus. Christian Fellowship in southeastern Turkey, and two Turkish and one German Christian who ran a little church bookshop in the town were abducted, tied up, and had their throats cut by Muslim extremists. Being a Christian 
is a serious and costly business in some parts of the world. It could be for any of you here, especially if you're young. Who knows how things could change in your lifetime? Now, why was Stephen martyred? Why did they kill him? Well, I think we can see how they managed to kill him if we just read chapter 6. But basically, they lost their argument with him. So they resorted to smear tactics. They resorted to misrepresenting what he was saying, misconstruing it, putting the worst construction on it, so that they would be alarming the authorities and that in the hysteria that resulted, Stephen would be able to be seized, sentenced and stoned. They'd lost the debate, so they engaged in dirty tricks and that resulted in violence. But that's how we want to know why. Why did this early Christian lose his life for just speaking, for just explaining the Christian message, the gospel? And the answer's not very complicated. It's simply that they took a different view of Jesus than Stephen did. Just look at uh, chapter 7, verse 51, to see that. Stephen is speaking, 7.51. How stubborn you are, how heathen your hearts, how deaf you are to God's message. You are just like your ancestors, You too have always resisted the Holy Spirit. Was there any prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They killed God's messengers who long ago announced the coming of his righteous servant and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You are the ones who have received God's law that was handed down by angels yet you have not obeyed it. You see, God had been telling his people all along this simple message. The law is my standard. You all fail to keep it. I therefore judge you. However, repent of your sins, throw yourself on my mercy, entrust your lives to me, and I will forgive you. Now, what they did instead was... Take it like this. Here is the law. It is God's standard. If we keep it, we are acceptable to God. Now, of course, they realised that they couldn't keep it. So they made up 619 qualifications to it, which had the effect of nullifying it. So making it possible for them to deceive themselves that they were keeping the law. It's no mistake that the Pharisees are also referred to as the lawyers. As James Thacker famously says in Yes, Prime Minister, that's what lawyers are paid for, to get you round the law. So they deceived themselves into thinking they could aspire to the standard of the law. So no need to repent. No need to totally throw themselves on the mercy of God. That's just too humiliating. 
And so they found this way out and they kept their pride. So no wonder they'd given the prophets of old a hard time. No wonder they had in the end to get rid of Jesus. Because what he stood for and what they stood for were totally irreconcilable. They were opposite ways of being accepted by God. One way was a free gift. The other was an earned reward. One way you had to swallow your pride. The other promoted your pride. And more importantly, one way was acceptable to God and not the religious leaders. And the other way was acceptable to the religious leaders, but not to God. So there's a head-on clash there. So using the argument, the arguments weak, shout louder methodology, they'd lost the argument, so they killed the spokesman. Stephen was stoned to death. Now at different periods in history... Christians have found that this way of being accepted by God and their total allegiance to Christ, who sacrifices the only grounds on which God is able to forgive us, has been challenged and they have been called to account and have had to take the consequences. About five times in the history of the Roman Empire, when the emperors suffered delusions of grandeur and even thought of themselves as divine or semi-divine, there were Christian martyrs as a consequence. One such was Justin. He was born in 100 AD in Nablus, which is in the West Bank today. And he was martyred in Rome in 165 AD, along with some of his students. Marcus Aurelius was the emperor. Junius Rusticus was the prefect of Rome. Let me read to you something of the interrogation that Rusticus gave Justin. The prefect Rusticus said, Let us now come to the pressing matter in hand. Agree together and sacrifice with one accord to the gods. Justin replied, No one who is rightly minded turns from true belief to false. The prefect Rusticus said, If you do not obey, you shall be punished without mercy. Justin said, If we are punished for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, we hope to be saved, for this shall be our salvation and confidence before the more terrible judgment seat of our Lord and Saviour, who will judge the whole world. So also said the other martyrs, Do what you will, for we are Christians and offer no sacrifice to idols. Rusticus, the prefect, gave the sentence, Let those who will not sacrifice to the gods and yield to the command of the emperor be scourged and led away to be beheaded in accordance with the law. At the time of the Reformation, when the medieval church was thoroughly corrupt, 
Men like Cranmer, Ridley, Latimer and Hooper were all martyred in the reign of Queen Mary. That church believed that you could earn your salvation. You could buy indulgences to wipe out your debt of sin. You could go to the mass and the bread and the wine became Jesus and he was re-sacrificed. So God is happy and you've attended, so he's happy with you. But Cranmer and the other brave reformed bishops said no. Christ died once for sins. His sacrifice was perfect. His body is now in heaven. His body is not on that table. When certain words are said, he's certainly present at communion by his Holy Spirit, but he is not in the bread and the wine. And because they correctly realised, like Stephen, that the whole way of salvation was at stake, they went to the stake. And how were they martyred? Fire must be one of the most painful ways of dying. Stoning must have been terrifying, but burning far worse. This is an account of the persecution under Nero, who was emperor in the mid-60s AD. First, this is Tacitus, a Roman historian in his annals writing. First, those who confessed to being Christians were arrested. Then, on information obtained from them, hundreds were convicted. In their deaths, they were made a mockery. They were covered in the skins of wild animals, torn to death by dogs, crucified or set on fire, so that when darkness fell, they burned like torches in the night. Nero opened up his own gardens for this spectacle and gave a show in the arena where he mixed with the crowd or stood dressed as a charioteer on a chariot. As a result... Although they were guilty of being Christians and deserved death, Tacitus writes, people began to feel sorry for them, for they realised they were being massacred, not for the public good, but to satisfy one man's mania. The Reformation in the 16th century was briefly interrupted by the reign of Queen Mary when Bishop Hooker was sentenced to be burnt at the stake, it took three quarters of an hour for him to die because the fire kept going out after it had only burnt part of him. Now, as I've thought over this account of Stephen's martyrdom and as I've read the accounts of many other Christians, two things stand out common to all. The first is that they don't seem to fear death when it comes. It's true that Cranmer so feared death by burning that he did renounce the faith. He rejected the truth. But when they came to carry him off to be burnt at the stake anyway, he faced it without fear. He pledged his allegiance to Christ when he was brought to death in that road outside of Balliol College, Oxford. Stephen 
had had a picture of Christ standing, welcoming him into heaven, perhaps standing to bear witness to the Father that a true Son of God was arriving. Remember, Jesus had promised, if we bear witness to him on earth, he will bear witness for us in heaven. Justin, when asked by the Roman prefect Rusticus, do you think that you will ascend to heaven to receive certain rewards? Justin replied, I do not think. I know and I am fully persuaded. When John Rogers, a vicar in London at the time of Queen Mary's persecution was burnt at the stake, the French ambassador was actually a witness to the event and he wrote home a description of the scene in which he said that Rogers went to his death as if he was walking to his wedding. John Bradford, who was one of the first to be burnt in the 1550s, said at the stake to his companion, who was also being burnt alive, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. The second thing that stands out is their resolution. I think it must also be that because they knew they were dying for the truth and that they would after death be going straight to heaven, that they were able to utter such words of forgiveness as well as confidence to their persecutors. Stephen's last words, like his Lord's, were, do not hold this sin against them. Aware that he was going to heaven, he was all the more aware of the awfulness of the alternative, hell that awaited those who opposed God, who didn't want anything to do with him. Bishop Hassan, in a prayer written after his son's murder, in which he thanks God for all that he and his wife had learnt through that dreadful suffering, wrote, O God, Bahram's blood has multiplied the fruit of the Spirit in the soil of our souls. So when his murderers stand before thee on the day of judgment, remember the fruit of the Spirit by which they have enriched our lives and forgive. Now we may not be called to be martyred for the faith, but we can never rule out the possibility. But even if we're not, their example, the example of the martyrs, is something to learn from. Here are a few. First, we learn that there are some things which we cannot compromise on. The primacy of our allegiance to Christ, his unique way of salvation, and his command to spread the gospel. We have to take our stand and we suffer the consequences. Second, we like them can expect at times to be on the receiving end of misrepresentation, of smear campaigns. The early Christians were accused of incest, for example, because they were overheard referring to each other as brother and sister. 
they were accused of cannibalism because they were overheard speaking about eating the body and blood of Christ. They were accused of treason because they didn't believe that Caesar was a god. In fact, they were also accused of atheism because they wouldn't sacrifice to the gods. They were all slurs. They were all the result of false rumours. Then there's the resolve. In the face of such situations, they ended up with greater trust in God. He held their eternal destiny in his hands and he will deal with the wicked. And fourthly, we learn also to forgive. The prospect of death and of judgment reminds you all too clearly that we are far from perfect. And realising that, and yet aware that God will still accept you, makes you able to see that you are not so different from your persecutors. So we should forgive. If for some of the martyrs were, they were asked if they would forgive their persecutors, and they did. And finally, though, there is the effect of taking a stand for Christ. We've mentioned the effect Nero's persecution had on the crowd that Tacitus records. We've mentioned the effect it had on the French ambassador at John Rogers' death. And here at Stephen's death, we read of one onlooker who held the cloaks of the executioner, one Saul, who approved, we read, of Stephen's stoning. But Saul was later converted and became arguably the most effective Christian evangelist ever. As someone has written, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Being faithful to Christ, the faith is not eradicated but it explodes as it does here. The religious authorities' counter-attack was designed to stop the spread of the gospel by distraction and by murder. But what actually happens? Well, first, the gospel spread because the further persecution under Saul merely forced all the Christian believers out of Jerusalem back to where they came from, via Judah, Samaria, Antioch. The death of one brings life to many. May we have courage and faith in our times of testing to bear witness to Christ and to carry on spreading the gospel. Let us pray. May we learn to spot both worthy distractions and head-on attacks against the church. May we analyse them correctly and act accordingly. And may the ultimate outcome be the further spread of the gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen.